So welcome everyone. I'm Solyndran Buller, your host of Real Moms, and we are about to have a real conversation with a very conscious mother. Our guest today is Dharmkor Khalsa, a spiritual coach, speaker, and co-founder of Yoga West in Vancouver. She was a leading Kundalini yoga teacher, trainer, and she teaches prenatal yoga and is a mother living in Vancouver, Canada. Welcome. Hello. How are you today? I'm great, Sal. How are you? <laughs> Good. Good. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you became Dharmkor Khalsa, the yogi and mom. <clears throat> okay, we're going way back here. Um, I first got introduced to this path of Kundalini Yoga um, back in, uh, let's just say yoga back in 1983. And I was living in Montreal at the time. Um, mm -hmm. And I was working in a daycare with kids, <laughs> but I wasn't a daycare teacher. I was an uh, administrator. So I worked in the office. Okay. However, the office was in a daycare. And uh, so I got to see lots of kids. It was the first time, and I was in my early, my mid twenties. I was the first time really I had uh, opportunity to interact with small children. Mm -hmm. And so I had no idea whether that would work or not. And we didn't have to, we could just stay in the office if we wanted to, but um, I used to wander around during breaks or whatever, and I got to know the teachers and it was a very friendly um, business. Mm -hmm. So the teachers were very welcome if, if somebody would just pop in and, you know, from the, the office. And, um, <clears throat> and one of the, so that, so that was kind of the atmosphere I worked in. And one of the other secretaries in the office, um, she wanted to do yoga. It was her idea. It's kind of, we were kind of doing extra, uh, dance exercise and it wasn't working. And, um, and then, then she got this idea, hey, you want to do yoga? Now, this was back in the early 80s where nobody did yoga. It's like nobody even knew what yoga was. And so she was kind of onto something. And so we went to this class and um, it was a Hatha yoga class. And it was like in the basement of a YMCA, you know, tucked away in the middle of nowhere. And I don't know he, how she even found the class. And uh, we loved it. We totally, so I used to go with her all the time. And then it was like a 10 week series or something. And then towards the end, uh, like a few classes from the end, the teacher didn't come one day and we had a sub. And we found out that the teacher had been coming out of her exercise class and got hit by a car and broke both her legs. Oh, gee. That is like so weird. <clears throat> so um, she was out. And so we had the sub and uh, we didn't really like the sub. So mm -hmm. we finished the course and then we didn't go back and we were looking for something else. And I went to the health food store because that's where you went for anything alternative. And there was one little card there it says Kundalini Yoga. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that was, but it was the only yoga. There was nothing else. Mm -hmm. And um, so we ended up going and it was a Kundalini Yoga class. And <clears throat> next thing you know, I was um, going to evening meditations and by that summer, I had moved into the ashram. It was kind of a bizarre circumstance where my, my apartment um, caught fire. Mm -hmm. I, actually, it was more smoke than fire. Mm -hmm. I smoked out. <clears throat> and um, I came back from, I was at a retreat, a Kundalini Yoga retreat, summer solstice. Yes. And, when I, and I'd gone for three weeks. And when I walked in, my landlord said, he was outside on the steps. He says, um, I wouldn't go in there if I were you. That's not a good sign. I said, why not? Mm -hmm. Fire last night. I'd been away three weeks. Oh. The night before mm -hmm. that the smoke thing had happened. And so I couldn't live there anymore. And so um, I lived at a friend's house and then I had to move. And so I ended up staying at the ashram mm -hmm. where they taught Kundalini Yoga and lived. And it was just temporary until my place got fixed. But in Montreal, in, the, in August, they have um, holiday. It's like in France, they have the contractors go on holiday for the whole month. Mm -hmm. So it was delayed and delayed and delayed. And the more it was delayed, the more I got used to living in the ashram. Ah, okay. It was a trick. It was a trick of the almighty God. So um, by the time the landlord said, okay, we're ready for you to come back now. Yeah. Um, I said, I, I'm not coming back. And uh, that was a big decision, that was a really big decision. Because mm -hmm. I like my place, I like my landlord, <coughs> everything was great. And so um, I ended up living there and then it got deeper and, th and that was my spiritual path. Now, I wasn't looking for a spiritual path. Right. I, I was into health 
I was into yoga and then, you know, doing this path, I was starting to meditate. And then there was the Sikh practices, which at first I wasn't interested in, but it was part of the package because the people that lived there were Sikhs. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what a Sikh was. I didn't care. Um, they wore turbans. I'm not interested, but mm-hmm. I really liked the yoga classes. And it was the ashram was this old house. They have these big old houses in Montreal and you had the classes there. And it was just the atmosphere and the people and then we had a couple of weekend intensives where we got introduced to the food. I love the food. And I started to cook it, vegetarian food, yogic vegetarian food. Right. And so it was the lifestyle that, that drew me in. Right. And then um, little by little, I started to get um, introduced to more elements of the path. Meanwhile, my friend who had been coming with me uh, to do yoga the whole time, she ended up um, not coming after a while because she just lost interest. But so it's obviously, she was obviously my, my, um, you know, introduction. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have gone. And then after a while, it just wasn't her thing. So mm-hmm. she was interested. She would ask me how it was going. And, but she, that, that was not her path. It was my path. So I was very, always very grateful to her. And then I met the, the master Kundalini, of Kundalini Yoga, Yogi, uh, Yogi Bhajan. And I wasn't impressed with him when I first met him. Right. It was like all of these, uh, you know, obvious things I wasn't impressed with. Mm-hmm. Um, I just really liked the yoga and I liked the food and the lifestyle. I like getting up early in the morning to meditate. I really liked that. And, um, and the people. So mm-hmm. it was, and, and it was very convenient because it was in my neighborhood and I kept my same job mm-hmm. and in a daycare. So it was a really, um, I, I completed my life because it started to give my life more depth and more meaning. And I kind of, and I was the only one doing this stuff. Like there was nobody else in my life that I could, that was saying, oh, yay, you, you know, that's really cool. I was like really out of the box. Uh, mm-hmm. Even my, my family, who's kind of used to me doing unusual things, kind of said, whatever, you know, right. but um, they didn't freak out. And, and I just checked in with myself and I realized how I knew I should keep doing it because it was so different. Um, I realized I had no more questions. I used to have a lot of questions about life. <clears throat> and, um, and then all of a sudden I realized it's not that the questions were answered. It was just, they weren't there anymore. So, yeah. So I just knew, okay, this is something that, that is happening that um, is satisfying some part of myself. I was just in my, I was like 27 at the time. Yeah. And there was no internet. There was no like spirituality was not a big deal. I mean, not in my life. I know in other parts of the world, um, things have started to boom, right? Yeah. Um, but for me, it was like, I come from an ordinary background, you know, go to school, get a job, get married. That's the kind of background I came from. So, and yeah. so I, I had, uh, I was raised a Roman Catholic. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. So I had like this traditional Christian, stable, conservative kind of life. And so it was very, what I was doing was like really out of the box and, Nobody in my family, everybody's coming from a really normal, normal background, plus all my friends. So anyway, I just kind of, and then I had a job, right? That was the important part. If I had a job, my dad was okay. My mom was okay. So I just kept going. Yeah. And then one one thing led to another. I started to want to wear the turban. That was just something that came to me, to wear the turban. I can't even think of my thought process at this point. It was just kind of normal. And um, I I just knew I was a Sikh even though I didn't really know what Sikhi was, mm-hmm. I just, in my heart, I said, oh, I must be a Sikh because everything they're doing, I like, and I'm already doing. I wasn't drinking, I wasn't smoking. I was already a vegetarian. <clears throat> I was all those things ready. And so I just realized, oh, I must be a Sikh. I don't know where that thought came from, but mm-hmm. it just seemed that it, it was like a hand in glove. I just, um, it fit me and I fit it. And I said, oh, that, that must be the way it is. And so, um, you know, then I kept doing the same thing. And next thing you know, um, I'm working for the ashram director in his business. I quit my job at the daycare. I ended up working for his company, which is a warehousing company distributing food products. Mm-hmm. Very stressful job. <laughs> I thought, what have I done? This was this a good move. But it was all part of the uh, atmosphere. And I, I even got some of my old buddies at the daycare to come and do part-time work at my new job. So it was all kind of interconnected. And then I would get some of the, when I was working at the daycare, I got a whole bunch of the ladies to come and do a meditation at the ashram. So I kept kind of interweaving 
mm-hmm. my life. And so it, it, it felt normal because everybody that I would invite to my life thought it was okay. And then, uh, then I ended up getting married a few years later. Um, and then I ended up moving to Vancouver. And then when I moved to Vancouver, everything uh, broke loose because it was a whole new package of my life. Mm-hmm. And then I really started teaching. That's when yoga, I, I moved in, in 89. And that's when yoga was, just before yoga was about to boom. And so um, this fellow I was working for, he was a Sikh. Um, and he said, hey, Dadamkar, you want to open a yoga center? Now, there's no yoga centers. There's not even a thing as a yoga center. That doesn't exist. So um, he, he just had this idea and he had, I was working for him. I got a job there and it was a, um, a computer, it was called the computer paper. It was a business that um, published a paper all about computers. And I thought, what do you, how, how do you keep a business like this going? It's like, once you've made one publication about computers, why do you need another one? Right. Anything about computers, nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one in my Montreal job, but it was like cutting edge. My boss got a computer and we had to train on it. And actually my friend who mm-hmm. took me to my yoga classes, she had a mini nervous breakdown because uh, she deleted a bunch of stuff by mistake. And mm-hmm. then she got completely phobic about the computer. <laughs> didn't want to call on it anymore. That's how new it was. We didn't want to touch it because we didn't know what it did. Okay. So I was working for a guy that published all about computers. And I thought, What's to a computer, you know? Once you've published, what do you need? But, you know, he, he knew everything about it. And it was just, that was booming. And then he said, you want to open a yoga center? And I said, okay. And so, yeah, I, I ran the yoga center in the daytime, in the nighttime. And in, the, in between, I had my office job. And it was all in the same space. Was it all in, located in Kitsilano? Yeah, in Kitsilano. He, he, um, he was a very entre- entrepreneurial fellow. And um, he just nabbed a space across the hall from our office. And he says, because his business was growing. So he says, um, the minute it went empty, he, he, he rented it. And he says, I can't fill it right now, but we'll run a yoga center mm-hmm. uh, in the morning and in the evening. Right. And so I ended up moving my desk in there at one point. So that was kind of my office. It was just a big room with a desk. Mm-hmm. And then we had a yoga center. We had classes in the morning, classes in the evening. Mm-hmm. And then we had like our regular job during the day. <clears throat> and so it started like that. And Yogi Bhajan even came there and taught in that space, that tiny little space. And, but it was all growing. Yoga was growing and growing. And then somebody came to me and said, can you teach me how to be a teacher? And I said, sure, come tonight or come tomorrow, whatever it was. And I gave her a two hour talk. And I said, okay, you're good to go. <laughs> it was hilarious. Yes, hilarious. And, um, and then we realized, no, we need, to have a training and then we started to have this I think I had those eight students at the beginning yes and I just made it all up because there was no training for teachers there was yes. nothing so I just made it up and it was a two-month course and I started to teach that and um, my boss he said make sure you pay yourself because the tendency is to just do everything uh, for free because it's what you love doing right and who's going to pay for yoga nobody even knows what yoga is so um, it started very small and then little by little, it grew and grew and grew. And then um, it kept expanding and expanding. And then we moved the yoga center. And then I, I got pregnant with my daughter. Isn't that so, Now, just so, back yeah. up just a little bit. Uh, two questions that come to mind. Number one, for our audience, can you tell me uh, what is Sikhi? Mm-hmm. Number two is, who is Yogi Bhajan? Okay. But, um, so Yogi Bhajan was one of the spiritual teachers that came over in the 60s when there was a boom of consciousness. And all of a sudden, the hippies were running around, growing their hair, smoking weed, taking drugs, dancing in the street, wearing... I remember the colors they used to wear because I was growing (laughs) up in Montreal. And I I thought, wow, they're a little weird, but I like their clothes because I didn't wear anything like that. I was like really concerned. We had uniforms in school, you know? Right. And so, um, but it was the revolution. It was, and at the time we didn't know it was a consciousness revolution. It was just what was happening. Mm-hmm. Looking back on it, it was like really crazy. And, you know, it wasn't really all the 60s. It was more the end of the 60s because that's when it was 69 when they had Woodstock and then Man and the Moon and, you know, um, the end of the, the, all the protests against the Vietnam War. It was all towards the end of the 60s. It really um, 
coalesced at that time. And so, um, at, so, so concurrent with all that, or um, to activate and increase all that, these spiritual teachers were drawn, either invited or they were invited at some point, but they all came over all these different paths from India and Tibet and from Japan. That's when the Zen started. And, you know, of course, a lot of the hippies went to Tibet and India and Japan to study with those teachers and then invited them over. Right. But the idea to go was just a consciousness revolution. It's just, uh, it was time. Okay. So Yogi Bhajan was the one <clears throat> that I got attracted to. I wasn't interested in any of the others. It just wasn't a thing. It's like nobody I knew was into that. Mm-hmm. And so that's how, you know, I just knew it was all destiny because there's no reason I wasn't looking for it. Right. I didn't even know what it was. And, but I was, I was, it came right in my face. Right. Um, like when the lady opened the door for mm-hmm. the yoga class, she had a turban on. And I said, oh my God, they live here. You know, yeah. I've seen them, a couple of them walking around the streets yeah. in the neighborhood. Yeah. And I didn't know who they were. Yeah. I didn't know who speak was. I thought they were part of the Moonies, which is a huge cult at that time. And so I kind of like walked around them because I thought they were part of a cult. Okay. And so, um, yeah, it just came right in my face. So he was a spiritual teacher, um, and he also happened to be a Sikh. When he first started to teach Kundalini Yoga, he taught Hatha Yoga first, then Kundalini Yoga. Um, he wasn't teaching anything about his religion, his, his, he was a Sikh, so he didn't teach anything about what a Sikh was. He just wore a turban, and he had certain practices, but he didn't bring that into the yoga at all. And it was only after um, many years that his students would ask him, maybe not many years, maybe, well, he was here for a few years, but he kept moving and then he ended up in LA. Mm-hmm. And then his students there, after a short time, would ask him, um, why do you have a turban? What are these practices? Where do these mantras come from? And then he started divulging more and more information. And then his wife joined him from India, BBG. Right. And he put her in charge of all of the Sikh stuff. He oh. gave the title, and he says, if you want to know anything, she's the one. Mm-hmm. Uh, she knows everything. And then, so he separated the two in that way, is that, so he just focused on being a spiritual teacher and teaching the yoga. But, you know, he would give information from time to time, but uh, he didn't make himself an authority on it, because he knew he wasn't an authority. Right. And um, he also didn't want it to be about that. Mm-hmm. And so it, because it's all self-initiated, it's, it's part of the Aquarian program, uh, the way that we are uh, doing business as humans now, it's a frequency has changed on the planet earth, is that it's not about somebody coming and converting you. Mm-hmm. It's not about somebody coming and telling you what to do, not just re- religion, with education, with government, with finances, with any authority mm-hmm. that we've previously given our power to it's all now about what what is it you want and then they're your advisors they're not your authorities they're not your um, bosses you're the boss of you and then so you got to figure out what is it i need what is it i want and who shall i ask so that's how the whole sikh dharma which is not a religion it's actually a lifestyle Mm -hmm. that includes god or spirit or higher self however you want to look at it it's like you are a spiritual being. What do you need to complete yourself? What do you need to be whole? So that's how it was taught. And um, at this point, this is how, what I'm teaching. Right. I, I'm, I, I continued in that vein and I went deeper with it. And, and what's the difference between spirituality and religion? Just for our audience, because I'm sure that uh, many people actually uh, have that question <clears throat> come up. Right, yeah, uh, it's they good don't question. The difference, yeah. So, what is spirituality yeah. and what is religion? Yeah, good question. Um, I was forced to look at all this because I had come from a religion, of course, being Catholic, but I had stopped going uh, to church and doing the practices when I was about thirteen. Mm. I just informed my mother that I wasn't going to the church anymore because every Sunday we used to go. Right. Um, she was really liberal. She was a real Aquarian being. And uh, she didn't particularly like that I said that, but she didn't put any resistance because she was very much uh, encouraged her children to do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't mean um, I don't mean run wild. I mean uh, whatever ideas they had. Mm-hmm. She didn't have any problems with that. 
Mm -hmm. So she herself was, was very interested in a wide variety of subjects. So um, that was when I was 13. So I knew what a religion was, but I wasn't a practicing anything. And I knew there was a, a depth to life that I knew there was something more. I couldn't even say depth. That wasn't even a word that came to me. But I knew there was something more because I could feel it. Mm -hmm. Like in the Matrix, you know, you could feel something was missing, right? But right. you don't know what it is. And so um, uh, I, I, when I was in university, this is before I, I um, was introduced to the path. I'm trying to remember the sequence. Um, I started to read Krishnamurti. I think that was the first introduction I ever had to a new way of thinking. And Krishnamurti was a spiritual teacher uh, in the 30s to 80s. I think he died in the 80s. Yeah, early 80s. And he was all by himself. He didn't have a path. They tried to make him head of a path, and he, he rejected that when he was in his 30s. He said, no, this is not where we're doing it. And he himself stepped out of that and just became a wandering teacher. Kind of like Aaronotic, you know, teaching everywhere. And some of his lectures were, were written down. And that was my first introduction, that way of thinking. So, and, religion. I and it wasn't a religion. It was a spirituality, but connected to yourself as a human. And, mm -hmm. and all the topics that you have, your questions you have about being a human were being answered with this other dimension that included your consciousness, your spirit, your soul, your... Um, your depth uh, of infinity. Mm -hmm. and so it was a different language and it wasn't um, dogmatic. It wasn't like, this is the answer. Mm -hmm. Whereas before I was always used to, you know, the priests or the church would just have answers for everything. But what is life? What's your purpose of life? What are you here to do? Um, what do you do when you sin or, or wrong? You know, And what things are wrong and what things are right? They just tell you the answer. Right. Whereas this other way was a lot of inquiry and a lot of suggestions so that you and you had to figure out all of the, you had to figure, you were invited to, to figure out the answers to any deep questions that you had about your life. Mm -hmm. Things other than, <clears throat> you know, what you'll eat for breakfast. Even when you go, when you actually look at it, what you eat for breakfast is also included in your life path. Mm -hmm. um, because it's how conscious you are. So the fact that there was um, a different, uh, a non-dogmatic and um, welcoming way of empowering a person was new to me. And I would say that that's more what spirituality is about. It's about uh, encouraging you to realize that you're the center of the universe and you have the answers but you have, to, you have to be guided into all of the options that are available because it uses these other parts of you, these other senses and these other capacities of you that are not given to you through a traditional education. And so it, it has to uh, open those doors for you right. so that you know it even exists. Now, um, I know that uh, you know, we're, we're speaking of consciousness and we're speaking of of religion and spirituality um and you've mentioned a number of times the aquarian the aquarian the aquarian. okay can you explain to the audience what is this aquarian age or aquarian times that you refer to because i'm sure there's many people i mean you and i have had numerous conversations we would understand but if you can uh, maybe um uh you know give your thoughts on that what is the aquarian yeah yeah, that's a big one. Um, well, that was part of the part of the teachings that came out of the um, increase of consciousness in the '60s, the change of consciousness from um, sometimes some people call it TikTok consciousness, or you know, you just do what everybody else always does, or what you're told to do, what your parents told to do, and you don't think about the meaning of anything, or should you do it, or should you not do it, or and you can understand why horrible things are happening. They just keep to be, seem to be happening over and over again. And it's something to do with people being bad. So there's a bad and a good. And you're trying to always put people in categories so that you stay on top all the time. So it's a judgmental kind of thing that was... It's, so it's a black and white way of looking at things. And then apparently there was a name for that. It was called the Piscean Age. Now, this is all based on 
um, astrological knowledge about how the stars move. And if you look up in the sky, yes. there's uh, certain points that mark the change of the ages. And so I, uh, I believe it's the, uh, the rising of the sun on the, the spring equinox. So in March, uh, March 21st, 20th, 21st, whenever, whenever the date is that year, when the sun rises, if you look up in the sky, which you can't see it in the daytime because there's no stars in the day. You can't see the stars in the daytime. But when, you know, just knowing the point where the sun is rising, right. that constellation mm-hmm. is, the, is this, it will tell you the age you're in. And every approximately 2,000 years, um, the age changes because if you look up in the sky, the, the, the stars are always moving. And it takes um, approximately 20, 28,000 years for it to go in a complete revolution mm-hmm. because about that's our background is the stars it's, it, they keep moving because we're moving too right. so if you look at so so the um each age is marked by a particular state of consciousness okay. and so these are the, the yogis and the rishis and the ones that deeply meditate have brought all this knowledge to us the native people too right we go deep into the the unconscious so right. the piscean age was marked by it's part of part of a bigger age called the Kali Yuga, which in the Vedic tradition is an age of darkness. Uh, I'll just stick with the Piscean part of it, <clears throat> that it's the black and white way of thinking. So that uh, there's wars and then there's peace, and then there's wars and then there's peace. And then, um, you know, you have a certain job to do and a role to do, and that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And you have children, and then they grow up, and then, you know, people have problems, but they will tell you how to solve the problems, either the politicians or the doctors or the educators, they will tell you what to do. So your consciousness is very dull and there's a lot of internal conflict, but you don't even know it's internal. You think, oh, my mother had diabetes, so I have diabetes. Mm-hmm. You know, my father was an alcoholic and so it runs in the family. So we had this very limited way of looking at things and we, people are extremely disempowered Disempowered meaning that you don't really have it. If you have no choice, you're on this track to hell and you can't get off of it. And all you can do is kind of feel a little better, get a few comforts here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the comforts that people normally would look for would tend to be very destructive, like drinking or eating too much or partying a lot or right. smoking, you know? And so I, we call it relaxing. We call it uh, socializing, mm-hmm. but it's insanity. It's total insanity. Mm-hmm. but we didn't know any better. And then Aquarian age is that when the, the light of consciousness starts to arise and you start to realize, wait a minute, you know, there's more to life than what everybody's been telling me. I don't know what, what's, what's there's more, but I know there's more. And so alternative healing methods, natural healing, um, you know, new ideas came in. Uh, empowerment of the individuals to find their own path and decide what they want to do or just think different thoughts, you know, about who should be in charge of anything. And now uh, we're deep into the Aquarian age. For example, it's rev- it, we don't really think it's revolutionary, but it's mind blowing. If you grew up in the fifties, just even Bitcoin, you know, the idea that we should not have money. Yes. It's inconceivable if you're growing up in the 50s over four, because we just need money. Right. And never mind digital currency and trans, e-transfers, and we're just talking about the money thing. Mm-hmm. So all these new ways of operating um, started to flourish and flower. And really it's infinite, these new ways that we can exist. And, it, and, it, and it's all about easing the burden on humanity. How, in other words, how can we help each other? Right. That didn't exist in the, <clears throat> before the Aquarian age. It was all about what can I get from me? It was very box-like. Mm-hmm. You take away a person's power when you separate, separate and divide people. Mm-hmm. Then they don't feel connected and they don't want to help each other because they're struggling so much. So, so the Aquarian age is a time of humanity, mm-hmm. human beings helping each other. And how we help each other is that we honor each other's um, imagination and um, inspiration and courage to do the right thing and do what's needed. Is it fair to say then that the Piscean age uh, 
was more of an external mechanism, whereas the Aquarian age that we're in, which is like you said, a few thousand, uh, few thousand years uh, into each age, this particular age that we're in is very internal, very personal, yet connected. Yeah, we, well, we had to go, uh, I guess the best word to define it is uh, internal authority, just the word using authority. Um, because we still have to function in the external world, of course, but we, we discovered the doorway to the inside, okay. which is as huge as the external. And if you deny humans the internal doorway, you can control them, make them small and keep them sick and uh, dying early and having lots of problems. So if you, if you give them power, power is from the inside. So that's what the consciousness did. It opened the internal door. So yeah, so we, we just included we included the internal, but that's where the power came from. Uh, so we, it's about changing everything around from external authority. We go to internal authority, but it's a, it's a huge learning curve and we're just barely started. We, even with all of the uh, new inventions and the revolutions of computer and internet and health standards and all that, we've just started um, the possibilities of the internal journey. Hmm. And so when did this Aquarian age actually, when did we step into it or when did it like all of a sudden, you know, well, well, I think it, it kind of uh, the, the uh, beginning of it <coughs> was the um, 60s. Okay. Um, and there was forerunners earlier than that, you know, of course, letter forerunners. And, um, but I think it really, it uh, 2012 was a very um, significant year. And many people would remember that, there's a lot of meditations and gatherings and such around that time. So that's kind of 2011, 2012, uh, around that time that, uh, um, it, it, that we just agreed that that was going to be the date that we would all look back on or, or focus on. But really, it was um, a spectrum that started in the last century, uh, kind of a warming up the consciousness because it takes, getting back to mothers, it takes generations to change consciousness it doesn't it doesn't change overnight mm -hmm. mothers themselves have to change first before they can birth the children with the new consciousness so darncor uh, became a youth <coughs> became a teacher became a mother is living in vancouver and so we're going to speed this up a bit right. and and um you know you and i have had numerous conversations about how a mother and the whole family needs to be in the right frame of mind before even planning to have a child come into their home or into their life. Um, can you touch on that for our audience? Because uh, as you know, we're, we have quite right. others that are interested, like how, how, you know, you think about Western um, uh, understanding of mothers is you were a mother, so go do it. Uh, but it's beyond that. Can you, can you touch on that for our audience? Yeah, I like, I like the way you said that, go do it. It's kind of like an extra job that you have or a side job yeah. And uh, at this point, right? Um, when I grew up in the 50s, my mom, there was no other thought of a job. It's like you were a mother. And that was all, you stayed at home and you raised your kids. And it was very unusual that women went out to work and often it was frowned upon that you were abandoning your family. Yeah. And then all hell broke loose where the economy uh, became very, very challenged. And now it's normal to have both parents working and the day, I mean, I worked in the daycare, you know, daycares are part of our life now. It's like, you can't function with that one. And it's unusual now for women mm -hmm. and sometimes fathers to stay at home. It's very unusual. Mostly people think, how can you afford it? Right. You can't afford it um, because our economy has become this God and it, it's consuming us. It's a false God. And so it's eating us all up. And everything's, everything we do is um, based on, can I afford it? Or is it, is it worth it? Or am I saving enough money? It, that's our bottom line all the time mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. about the money. That's our God. Yeah. So, um, sorry, I lost the thread. Uh, what were you so, saying? So the, converse, the, the, the question was like, uh, you know, how, how does the whole family come into the of a mother having a child like right okay got it not just, so, yeah. so um when there's a lot of confusion like that um the roles get very blurred 
-hmm. and uh, who raises the child really becomes almost secondary because we're so frantic about making money and surviving. Mm -hmm. And so whenever there's a lot of chaos, there's opportunities for the new to come in. Because once everything is set and it's all going and the train is on the track, you don't have a reason to change anything. Even if you're suffering, you, you keep doing the same thing over and over again. And then all of a sudden the train crashes <coughs> and there's a chaos. So when the, the economy got more pressurized, housing prices, land prices, everything went up, um, you, you just have to work. You have to get more money. Okay. And that's what we think we have to get money by work, right? So mm -hmm. uh, mothers started sacrificing. <clears throat> and, um, and so at the same time that there was more chaos at home and in the families, at the same time, more teachings started to come from the East through these spiritual teachers as to the ideal situation at home including the mother, which is the, the, the stable base and the source of the home is the mother. Mm -hmm. And when I first heard these teachings, uh, of course, they made sense to me, but it was like, how are we ever going to do that? That we're so far away yes. from the traditional village mother mm -hmm. that has so much support because of the village and the, the elders and the grandparents and the aunties and the you know, the routine and there's a cow right there and there's fields right there. So she can stay, well, she has nothing else to do but stay at home. And she has a lot of physical jobs to do. Um, and cooking meals is a full-time job and getting water. And so she is always there for the children out of necessity. And so, um, so when I first heard these issues, like, <clears throat> this is not going to work. <laughs> so nonetheless, Nonetheless, because of the Aquarian um, frequency, everybody is invited to figure stuff out. We're intelligent beings. Okay, we don't live in villages with cows outside. Um, we live in apartments or single dwelling homes or something. And um, there's no cow anywhere. And there's milk at the local store. That's the closest you're going to get to a cow. So how can you um, bring these ancient teachings which raise... Um, stable, healthy, emotionally stable children um, into the world instead of having children with ADD and allergies and um, uh, behavioral problems and learning disorders and uh, all kinds of suicidal ideation when, when you know, 10 year olds and all these horrendous problems and then the digital age exploded and all that problem. So how do you, how can you um, raise stable, emotionally, spiritually, physically stable, healthy children. The ancient teachings do give how to do it, but then we have to figure out how to adapt it right. to our modern lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the creativity is how to adapt it. And there's no one way of doing it. So you have to go out to the essence of the teaching, which is the mother and the father. So you have to examine what is a mother, what is a father versus looking at a role model in the village. Right. Because what, she, what that mother did, we physically can't do. So we have to look inside and we have to see, yes, it looks like she's making uh, rice and rotis and, and uh, cleaning the house with a straw broom and all that, right? But what is she really doing? So what is she taking care of? What, what space is she holding? What, is the, what do people rely on her for? Right. These are the questions we have to ask versus what is she doing? And so in a traditional home, in a traditional home, you have a female mother. And of course, when we're looking at our audience today, we can have two mothers or you can have two fathers and or you can have just a mother and no support whatsoever. So the key question is, is to go on an internal journey and really question because um, can you maybe touch upon um, to really focus in on what is not being said or what is not really being communicated? Because therein lies, I think, some of the Aquarian uh, consciousness that a lot of people may or may not understand. Yeah, it's like, what does a child need, right? What does a child need other than air, water, and food <clears throat> to be a stable, contributing adult? To be a giver versus, rather than a taker. That's the bottom line. Have you raised a giver or have you raised a taker? 
what produces that now psychology and psychiatrists and they have tons of models and then the yogis um, or the original teachings of human all say the same thing because humans are all the same we're all the same so um, you know you need healthy food and of course that would that would vary from region to region where you lived on the planet earth like if you're living in the north of Canada, the traditional peoples, there are not many of them left, they eat just animal um, food. Right. They, they hunt whales and seals and, and that's what they eat. But their bodies have adapted, so that's what serves them. And then if you grow up in the Andes Mountains, you just eat corn and beans. And you get really, really healthy just on corn and beans. And then I lived in Africa for a while and uh, there's just a few things people eat. And they're extremely strong, healthy. So there's no one thing to eat and um, it really depends on the traditional food of the area and what the body has become used to. Now we have people migrating everywhere now. It's like where you were born often is not where you end up at all. And sometimes it's really, really different. So we have to have a different measure for determining what the body needs. And that's just the beginning, right? Cause the mother produces the baby's body. So what is the mother going to eat to produce a healthy baby body? So you have to say, what does the mother need to eat? So if you go back to the yogic teachings is that there are certain foods, but it depends on your area. Um, if those foods are available, whether you even like them. And, and, and then bottom line is that your body will tell you what to eat. If you're a mother and you're pregnant, you know that the, you're attracted to certain foods at different times. And if you tuned into that, that'll be fine. <clears throat> You'll be totally fine. I remember um, I was ravenous when I was first pregnant. And then after a few months, I hardly, I didn't eat very much. And I'd hear, heard all these stories about women wolfing down all of this food and constantly hungry and gaining so much weight. I, I only experienced that in the first couple of months. So um, every pregnancy is completely different because every mother is completely different. Every body is different. So you really have to go inside and say, what do I want to eat now? What do I need now? Now you, you have a history, of course, of pregnancies according to your DNA, sometimes there's a difficult pregnancy or there's a fear, fears that come <clears throat> and uh, affect the certain prior conditions that you have. Mm -hmm. So there's, the, there's so much um, like family history of pregnancies and then there's your personal health history. Mm -hmm. So there's not, you can't prescribe a diet for a pregnant woman, even though the doctors would like to. Mm -hmm. If you trust your body, of course, that's a journey in itself is getting to trust your body. That's huge. But if you trust your body, you will always eat the right thing. <clears throat> and then, you know, if you have more questions, you can look around. And that's what I did. I, I followed the yoga kitchens and there were certain supplements and certain foods that were recommended. Mm -hmm. And I tried certain ones and certain things worked for me and certain things didn't. Mm -hmm. So that's the beginning. Mm -hmm. And that's always the most important part is empowering the mother first in the pregnancy and then raising the child the mother and her consciousness <coughs> and her <clears throat> her um her confidence is number one mm -hmm. so that's the essence of the mother is now that there's a lot to that but if you want to focus is that empowering the mother to be a mother as a not as a job not as a part-time thing not as something that's going to come and go but right. as a, a, a way of living or the, a way of being as a human, right. it's, an it's an actually an archetype right. that um, shows up. And it's not just when you have a child. I mean, that archetype is available for all women. Mm -hmm. But it's a way of thinking. It's a way of being. It's a state of consciousness that you hold where you realize that what's coming, whoever you're nurturing, whether it's your business or a friend or a child, is dependent upon you to be confident, conscious, and um, giving in your capacity. So you become a pure channel mm -hmm. of the truth. That's the mother. You're, you're the bottom line for ensuring that these humans are going to have a, a chance. So what do you think society or community needs to address moving forward to support uh, the mothers that are mothers and the mothers uh, that are hoping one day they will be mothers. What, what do you think society or community needs to, uh, 
needs to address moving forward? Well, everything has to change, obviously. <laughs> yes. It's like, where to begin here? Where to begin? So you have to begin with the mother herself. Mm-hmm. And the mother herself has to self-initiate into that. It's not about making a law or, um, you know, it has to happen. No, it's like mothers have to wake up. And how are they going to wake up? We don't know. It's just they either do or they don't. And when they wake up, then it's on their head. They realize that, oh, I have to come through for me because that's the teaching. The mother is the first teacher. So first I have to come through for me, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. I have to learn about emotional intelligence. I have to learn about spiritual law. I have to learn about physical physical health. Right. And Mm -hmm. if I can't do it for me, I won't be able to help anybody, particularly my children. Because I'm the first teacher. I give the, the first three years, the auras of the mother and the baby are joined. And it's not what you say. It's through transmission of your presence that the child learns. Mm. So the child learns everything about who they are, how life is. Is it scary? Is it fun? Is it flowing? Is it stuck? Um, what I need to eat? How confident am I in myself? Everything from the mother. And, you know, or else you have to go into therapy when you're 26. And then it's really yeah. hard to change your programs. So the first three years are the most critical years for the formation yeah. of a healthy human. And the mother has to teach that by transmission. So everything that supports that. So the mother has to be free. She has to be, has money. She has to have physical support. There's a lot of traditions uh, after, the, after the baby's born that uh, a a woman in the community comes and serves the mother so she can relax and rejuvenate. And then she needs teachings and she needs money. You know, our society has to be able to support her um, being able to do all this. And there's no one way that she doesn't have to like not work. It's possible she can work and stay at home, but she has to, she has to feel empowered. Mm -hmm. She has the capacity to deliver this, in the structure that we have. So, yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's many ways depending on the situation that each individual is in, whether it's a single parent, uh, 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 you know, a, uh, a mother, father with a whole tribe behind them or, or maybe just two fathers. Yeah, and people can have like a huge family network and yeah. not support the mother. Exactly. There could, could be so many programs to disempower her and take away her... Um, her ability because everybody else has an agenda to dominate. Mm-hmm. So it's not about the numbers of people around that mother. It's about the, the structure that surrounds her to empower her to be her best self. And that could be just one person. Mm-hmm. It could be a small tribe. It could be a community, but it would have to, you know, th- 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 that thought, that thought process <clears throat> has to permeate enough of the culture Right. So that she gets constant feedback that it's not just working and, and increases her confidence, but she needs a lot of help. I mean, raising a child does take a village and not just in the first few years. I'm talking about, you know, health support because sometimes the child is not well just from the karma and she needs a lot of medical support or physical support or just never mind education and then uh, child minding um, and then, you know, suppose you you already have a business happening you know you need help there's so much individual differences but it's up to the woman to know what do i need because some women just are physically stronger than other women yes or uh, mentally stronger and so some women need more than others mm-hmm. so each woman would have to determine how much help she needs and in what area okay And we're coming down to a close here. And so I have one last question for you. And that question is, what is your greatest strength as a mother and your most challenging weakness? Um, Greatest strength. I think just uh, knowing what I know, what I just said there. Okay. I think just knowing all that and um, being able to impart it and knowing that it's all in my head. So whatever's happening to my child, that's how I raised her, I knew it was all about me. Mm-hmm. I knew that whatever she was acting out, it was never her. So it was up to me to correct that thing or at least look at it, whatever the fear was, whatever the insecurity was. 
because mm-hmm. uh, a child is just being very um, uh, authentic. They're just responding to the vibes I'm putting out. So right. if I'm being angry or upset or insecure or whatever, the child is going to react to that. Right. And they're not acting out. They're just giving you feedback that you're not together. Yes. And so that, that's, I would say, the strongest one. And the weakest is that um, well, it kind of went in stages, but it's because I'm not the same person I, I am now than when I was a mother. So there was many things I had to learn on the job and that I didn't know at that time. Mm-hmm. So the and so, was the- you know, I, I can't really call it, a, it was kind of a weakness at the time, but um, one thing beautiful about life is that you can always correct mistakes. Yes. So that even if you couldn't give your child what you wanted to at the time, um, maybe, well, all I know is you weren't supposed to, otherwise it wouldn't have happened. So you can give that to the child when they're 15 or 25 or whenever. As you learn it, you can give it. Yeah. Okay. So how, how can our audience reach you if they would like to contact you, if they'd like to get more information because you are a spiritual coach, uh, you're a speaker, and you're um, a fantastic uh, yoga teacher trainer, whether it's prenatal yoga, uh, et cetera. So a world of knowledge. So how can our audience contact you? Uh, the best way is um, through my email, which is dharamkar, D-H-A-R-M-K-A-U-R at gmail.com. That's the best way. And then of course, uh, I'm on Facebook on Messenger. So that's also another way. But right now, that's the easiest way. Wow. Well, thank you so much for this uh, incredible conversation and knowledge that you've imparted on, on us here at Real Moms. And to our audience, I'm Salindran Buller. I'm from Real Moms, where we honor, empower, educate, and inspire mothers, mothers to be, or anyone that identifies as a mother. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>